0: The evil of corruption reaches into every corner of the world. Corruption lies at the heart of the most urgent problems we face. Welcome to Confidential Brief, where Chad Thomas takes you into the stories behind the issues facing our society. I'm joined on the air today by Terry Angela, she's authored a memoir called White Trash, My Year as a High Class Core Girl. Terry, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much, Chad. I'm really excited to be here and to be having this conversation with you about my book.
0: Terry, I absolutely love the book and I read a lot, but this book gripped me and I'm not quite sure why. There's a couple of things I suspect that uh, we share in common, but I think a lot of our listeners also share that in common. So I think let's start off by asking you, why did you decide to write this book after all these years?
1: Chad, I had always known I was going to write a book, um, especially when I kind of looked back on that year and – Just kind of was able to look at all the things that I experienced and went through. Um, Part of it was trying to actually investigate and unpack how I got to that point. It's kind of been stewing around for a long time. I started the beginnings of the book probably about three years ago um, and then decided to wait until my children were all finished school so that I could have adult conversations with them about the book. Yeah, I just wrestled with some of the, the, the difficult issues until I could kind of f- find a clear way through through to them and, and understood the themes and the layers that were going
0: to make up the book. You're brutally honest in the book, especially about your time as a high-class core girl in London. How did your husband and your children react to that brutal honesty and seeing it in print and actually reading something that you may have said to them previously?
1: It was difficult for my husband. He obviously knew, and uh, we have no secrets, he knew everything that happened. The, The challenge was I chose to write it in the present tense always. I wanted to really, like you say, I wanted to grip the reader. I wanted to pull them into my world and make them feel like experience the immediacy of the situation as it unfold, almost kind of place them in that world from my childhood all the way through um, to that final that final year. So for him reading it in the present tense was really quite um, an experience and obviously just having those details firsthand um, the, there was one time when he came home from work and I was just you know on my couch, collapsed in a heap crying my eyes out and you know i had just written about the breakup of my first my first love and someone that the first person that i gave myself fully to and you know i relived that experience so he came home to find me you know sobbing over my ex-boyfriend so that those kinds of things are very difficult um it was quite a rocky road but we made sure we got some um couples counseling from a supportive and experienced couple, and that that really helped a lot.
0: So I don't want to ruin the book for our listeners, and I see it's creeping up very nicely in the top 10 um, books that are that are on the top 10 listed exclusive. So yeah. it really is a great, great read, and I really encourage everybody to go out and read it. But I started the show by saying that we seem to share a lot in common, and, and by that I don't mean in any way that I've lived your life. It just so happens that, I went to school in, in Maritzburg. I went to Merkiston prep. My mom and I moved around a lot. I landed up at Parktown Boys living in Healborough at the end of my schooling. And this may surprise you. My head boy and friend in my final year at Parktown Boys name was Terry Angelos. He now lives in the United States. So it's just, it's just quite ironic. And also like you growing up on school campuses, I grew up first at Intel Training College in Maritzburg where my mom was the nurse for the students, then at Edgewood. In Pinetown and and later JCE in Johannesburg. So there's so many similarities that people can relate to in your book. And one of the most important things was what you described as creeping normality or landscape and amnesia. Mm. And this is, this is something that all of us South Africans of this generation and older walk around with and I think it goes somewhat of a way to try explain why we live with institutionalized racism in our country. It's because it seemed so normal at the time.
1: Thanks, Chad. There were, you know, to be honest, the core girl story is one is one layer of the book. And it it is there is it is fascinating. But I really wanted to weave a lot of other themes and layers into the book. And so um, a couple of them you've picked up already. But this idea of kind of a social trauma and I heard in your introduction you're talking about just taking a break from corruption. You know, we can end up just having some kind of almost like a fatigue about all of these things. We get accustomed to them. We're not aware of the social trauma that's actually impacting us. And I think it's something that's never really been addressed amongst um white people in particular because it's a difficult topic and it's I've tried to write in a way that it's very clear that I'm not a victim of any of these circumstances and I I take full responsibility for all my worldviews, my outlooks, all of these things. But we you know we grow in, in a petri dish, a social petri dish and these things definitely do affect us.
0: You are right. It's a very important conversation that a lot of people have avoided having And I'm hoping that this book opens up that dialogue and it is one of the main underlying aspects of the book. And that is being raised first in a racist Rhodesia, then in a racist South Africa and then experiencing the world through the eyes of a youngster in London. I'm chatting to Terry Angelos. We're going to be back straight after this. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. My conversation today with Terry Angelos and her incredible book, White Trash My as a High Class Call Girl. And if I may, um, Terry, I'd like to now chat about that world of prostitution, your viewpoint on prostitution, especially in the context that it's still illegal in so many countries that leads to, in my opinion, people being taken advantage of. There's a part of your book where you talk about no retirement plan for prostitutes. You also talk about some horrendous incidents, especially the one night where you were basically kidnapped and your life was threatened by a drug deranged sociopath. And we see all the types of characters that are involved from those that are there strictly to make money off you to those clients in inverted commas who are the caring clients. And again, not to give too much away from the book, but that particular client was, was almost the, the victim of, of blackmail. What is your view? on prostitution do you believe it should be legalized do you believe it, it should remain illegal and what about the rights of of sex workers
1: chair thanks for bringing that up i think that's um it's it's a difficult topic and i i wrote from my viewpoint and my experience which was as a young girl um and a young girl coming from a an actually very safe uh, middle class home um from a, a place of incredible privilege, a place of being educated. And, um, you know, as you know, when you read the book, I was a very curious girl and went in with my eyes wide open. So I wasn't, I was, I didn't come from a place of desperation. I wasn't human trafficked. I wasn't, um, I think there was a degree of grooming in those, those gentlemen clubs. They do kind of, I called it, um, grade one for hookers. They do kind of pull you in. Quite, um, cleverly. So, from my experience, I, you know, I reached a point where I had, I had, it it almost destroyed me. I felt broken and, um, I, it, it really had ravaged me psychologically and emotionally and physically. And um, I to the point where I was almost ready to take my own life. I I just couldn't see a way out. So something that had started off very glamorous, very exciting, very a great adventure, a lot of money, expensive dinners and holidays, and um, and the opportunity to kind of feel some power over men, um, quickly deteriorated into something that was quite horrific. So that's my viewpoint. I think what I find is difficult is that there's all kinds of scales in which women and their sexual value is tied to some kind of, to some kind of economy, Um, in some way in which a woman has to exchange something of herself for some kind of safety or security, whether it's in uh, an abusive relationship or a single mother with a boyfriend who provides and, you know, there's just no way out. In terms of legalization, I do think women do need um, protection. And I think the criminalization of the the exchange always falls upon the woman and not the men who are preying on her or exploiting her.
0: After reading what had happened to you on that one particular night with the man in the jaguar, it leads one to understand the dangers that's associated with, in this business, you write later that it's a transaction. It's a transaction that completely corrupts any humanity and connection between yourself and the client. You talk about, it's a trade, it's your flesh, they pay for it. You know what, you, what you're what you offering, they know what they're taking. And I think this is, it's, it's it's so honest, it's so brutal, and it opens people's eyes to the reality that there is a transaction. And mm-hmm. there are people that go into this trade, eyes wide open, and they do need protection. And yep. there is a choice involved. And because that protection is not afforded by the state and because of the stigma that's associated with it, you have literal, and I mean it in the literal sense, psychopaths who take advantage of that situation. You talk about a serial killer that was on the loose and you thought it could never happen to me.
1: Mm. Yeah, there's uh, – you know, I did quite a lot of research um, – just to compare my experience to others and just to kind of get a sense of the whole spectrum of the, of the experience. And something, <clears throat> something that was quite shocking to me was that in the process of legalization of prostitution and providing safety and, um, and all of these kind of support structures that, um, one of the things that is offered is, is training in hostage like to be trained in a hostage situation, the kind the levels of training to actually do that job are compared to being like you know in in some kind of like really hectic security situation, you know where to hide a knife, how do you you know how to avoid being strangled, how to get out of a hostage situation, and that's the reality of what women who are in those situations are facing i mean and and the idea as well is that um so a few of them report anything to the police and I certainly didn't want to report anything that happened to me to the police because you even you're just as vulnerable there and the idea of saying that you were exploited you know when your life is already seen as of so little value is you you know there's just you you wouldn't do that so yeah it's, it's a complicated situation and I think I think the thing that just breaks my heart is is particularly in South Africa and countries of great inequality that so few girls find themselves with very little other options in terms of viable jobs, job security opportunities. And someone comes along and offers money and offers, a a, you know, what appears to be some kind of Security actually is just there to exploit.
0: The, dark, the the book takes a dark turn and it's not just the guy in the jag. There's another incident you, you chat about and I'm not sure whether um, I got it right, but you were in a room with a man. His eyes were black. They were, you could see, you could sense that something was not right here and you had to extricate yourself from that. And I can mm-hmm. just imagine the fear of wanting to extricate yourself from that room and not wanting it make it look as if you're running away in case he then reacts. Mm. And then, of course, throughout that that period of your life, you're talking about the drug abuse and mm. how this is is numbing these experiences. You're listening to the Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. It must have been difficult. You don't really describe the period of time where you you, you now find yourself with him that leads to to the marriage, because you talk about the healing, you talk about finding your faith, which is so critical and so important to anybody. But mm. we don't really hear about what you had to work through. And I think you also opened in your book, you talk about the celibacy um aspect of it. You know, from being a core girl to suddenly being celibate. It was bizarre. So tell us about from when when you and your your husband got together how he helped you work through this and how you helped yourself work through this and the role your faith played in all of this.
1: Sure, Chad. So as you can tell, I'm a person of extremes from prostitute to celibacy. <laughs> but um, I think the choice for, to not engage in any sexual activity with my husband um, during the time we were dating was probably the most healing thing because What it, what it allowed is for a very deep friendship and a surprisingly romantic relationship. And I think some people would be surprised to hear that in my, in my experience, actually removing the sexual part of the relationship allowed an incredibly deep romance to blossom because it actually forced us to do things And spend time together in, in other ways to not fall back on the physical relationship for intimacy, to actually build intimacy through other things. And for that, for me, that was very healing because I was so adept at using my sexuality to manipulate and to, um, and rely on it for my self-esteem. You know, I was, I was a young girl who had experienced to some degree, not just the exploitation, but actually the power a kind of power over men through my sexuality and so I, I felt very vulnerable because I thought I had to learn who was Terry without all of those weapons and Without disassociating myself, you know, numbing myself to actually allow my emotions to come to the fore and to, to see myself through someone else's eyes who looked, who looked at me and just saw me and fell in love with me and you know, just to actually believe that I was worthy of love. And I think with, without stepping away from that sexual side of me, I think I would have found that extremely difficult. It would have been a lot messier. There would have been so many things tangled in with it. Not that it wasn't difficult. I think that that was, that allowed me a safe space. I don't know if that's, if that's making sense.
0: That's, no, it does. It makes complete sense. You're listening to the confidential brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. Today I got to chat to Terry Angelos about her memoir, White Trash, My Year as a High-Class Corgill. We deviated slightly from our normal topics that um, are normally consumed with fraud and corruption, which has become so synonymous with the way our country is at the moment. And it was good to take this break. Terry, your book is really brutal. It's really honest. And it tells a story and the underlying story about Rhodesia and South Africa I found absolutely fascinating. And could relate to it. And this is why I would encourage people to read that, because it makes one start to think, especially when you spoke about the hypothesis of the boiling frog. But I want to talk about this one section of your book that absolutely shocked me. And I don't recall having to go through this, thank goodness. And that was your visit to the abattoir. Mm -hmm. (laughs) My goodness. Uh, you wrote that in such an incredible way and you described it so perfectly. Why do you think that particular memory has stuck with you so much?
1: Chad, um I think growing up in a climate of war, um actually creates, I think, a hyper awareness and a hyper vigilance. And I, I was quite an imaginative child and, uh, you know, consumed Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew and all kinds of things. So as a child, I kind of processed things um, and, you know, you overhearing things about terrorists and obviously for us, uh, they were terrorists, you know, for those who are fighting the fighting against white supremacy, they were freedom fighters. But I think there's just kind of, I think, a way in which my memories were really, um, I was just hyper-aware, you know, living on edge, that that experience of being always on high alert. And I think that was part of what happened to me as I talk about my alarm bells becoming rusty and just becoming quite immune to danger, being able to, you know, go into very dangerous situations, just not... Where other people might have thought, you know, run, run away. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't go there. I, you know, I was raised in a, in a, in a, by a very adventurous parents. I mean, we went, you know, we went swimming in the Kariba amongst the crocodiles and all kinds of things. So I think it was that. I think it's just a hyper alertness. And, um, you know, as I said in the book, there was no permission slip. You know, we were just, we were just educated on, on what went on around us. We, you know, there, it was a farming community. And so school outing at the age of eight years old was off to the local abattoir to see how our Polonian salami and everything else and landed up
0: on our table exceptionally graphic section of the book, very well described. I felt as if I was in that abattoir, just minus the white plastic apron and white gum boots. <laughs> your dad played a very important role in your life. He was, I think, the only real male role model for such a long time. And he wanted to be, you call it, he wanted to be the hero to the girls in his life, his wife mm-hmm. and his daughters. You don't talk much about your sisters, though, throughout the book. You mention in one part, I remember, where, um you 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 went across the river in some um extreme sport you were the first to do it, and she got your one sister got tangled up Um she was quite a bit younger than you i think four or five years but we don 't get to to learn much about your sisters was this because you didn't want to bring them in the book you didn't want them to be a part of the book uh because the story is is so much about the trauma you went through, or is it just that the relationship is such that you, you wouldn't want to bring them up?
1: No, I have very close relationships with my sister, and we, we're a close family. Um, I, I'm older than my sisters, and I think what I tried to do with the book was actually not not pull anybody into the book where it wasn't necessary, and even not name names, uh, because it, it, there is stigma attached to it, and I wanted to be sensitive. It was very much a self-examination. It was, you know, coming from... Um, you know, a close family, an educated family, a place of privilege. You know, I wanted to kind of trace the trajectory of how did I end up where I ended up, and and that was actually where a lot of my my shame sat. In that I I couldn't find kind of a social excuse in the sense of I wasn't abused as a child. I you know I didn't have kind of the normal uh, traumas that that girls that end up. You know, doing doing sex work are often associated with. Um, but what I did was did find was a kind of social trauma, um, and this kind of living in with constant danger, um, and this hyper alertness definitely had an effect on my on my psyche. And then all the disruption. You know, you 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 mentioned just moving schools and you know immigration, the sense of displacement. Um, you know, how those things played out. So I wanted to explore those things and not necessarily tell a family story. Um, Some of the names in the book have been changed just um, to protect people, um, just from the stigma, I suppose.
0: So I'm very happy to hear that you and your sisters have a great relationship because that's the one thing that was left unanswered for me that I was so very curious about. And you just touched on such an important point, how you got into it compared to how other people get into it. And there's another part of the book where it's left to our imagination as to what happened. And that's when you're driving through Scotland and your friend Sally shows you where mm. her grandfather was with that caravan. And that that allows us, the reader, to conjure up some of the most horrendous images in mm. our minds. And mm. it's, it's, it's just so, so very important to understand what some of these people have been through. Mm. I, I need to know in closing what you want to see people taking away from this. I know what I've taken away from this book. There's so many parts of this book that I can relate to, not because I have a shared experience, but because I can relate to circumstance and I can relate to the period of time in which you're talking about. Mm -hmm. But you must have had a mission in mind. What is it that you want to impart to those that are going to read your book?
1: I think just... What I'd love to impart is there's two things. I think I'd like the book to, to bring about some great conversations about difficult topics. I think also just, just, I think that the whole, the whole difficulty with shame you know, it's taken a lot of courage to write the story. And um, one of the things that I have discovered is that, you know, when when shame is kept hidden, you know, it's quite poisoning. But when you bring it out into the open, and obviously bringing it out into the open, not everyone needs to write, you know, write a book per se. But you know, in a safe spl in a safe place. Um, shame cannot survive empathy and compassion. And so what I've found is not just through the book, but when I have told my story to people and, and shared, you know, that I was able to come out of it and able to build an incredible life and have a beautiful family and that it gives hope. But I think when people respond with compassion or they they say I can relate, even if it's not necessarily in in that extreme version, but just relating um, and connecting with the story, you know, it brings healing, and I think so. That was my intention with the with the book is to is to actually share is to share about some difficult topics, create conversation, and you know, offer compassion and healing um, that it's possible for, for some of your most shameful things to actually be healed.
0: Terry, I thank you so much for joining me today. You've got a brand-new fan. I really enjoyed the book. I read it this weekend in and amongst a move, and I enjoyed every single page of it.
1: Chad, thank you so much. I'm just so thrilled to have been able to have this opportunity just to have a conversation with you about
0: the book. Terry Angelos' book, White Trash My Years Are High Class Corgle, has just been released and is already climbing the ladder of the top ten books and exclusive and is available at all other good bookstores. Again, Terry, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you.